Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We live in a cult of distraction. Distractions all around us. How many of us have been in a conversation with someone and our phone dings? And because it dings, we, without thinking, have to pick it up and look at it. And we see a message. And it gets our mind going in a completely different direction until 30 seconds later, we're back to the conversation with the person right in front of us, and we didn't hear what they just said. In fact, maybe it even takes another minute or two minutes, depending on the message, before you can really get your attention back. And it's not just in a conversation. Our phones can be dinging all the time. And we can go on there even when they're not dinging and find ourselves taken here and there and all over the place where our mind is heading in a lot of different directions. But these screens that we carry around with us are just a reflection of something bigger in our society that we are a cult of distraction. If you listen to the State of the Union address, you might see some of the distractions that are all around us. It was as if it was a bullet list of all the things that are wrong and all the ways that we are going to fix them. It started with something as serious as a national invasion of a sovereign nation, the invasion of Ukraine. The measures were taking the economic sanctions, the courage of the Ukrainians against opposition and violence, But then it ended with something completely different, grabbing at political topics on abortion, choice rights, the Equality Act, and the rights of transgender children and athletes. There was a lot about, at the end, about addictions, about cancer, about death. It was as if the speech was meant to fix the world. What's the problem and what's the solution? So if you're a young person growing up in this world where you're hearing this kind of rhetoric, it can be overwhelming. I remember meeting a young person in his 20s who told me, Pastor, I just can't get my thoughts together long enough to know what's important, what matters. Because we kind of throw it all there at the same level of importance. How do we determine what really matters, how to prioritize one thing over the other thing. And so he'd find himself stuck in video games all night long and waking up the next day wondering what matters, what to do with myself. In the words of Neil Postman, we are amusing ourselves to death. And it can be addictions, it can be transgenderism, it can be social media, It can be noisy things, it can be shiny things, but we're like a dog that's noticed a squirrel. Until Jesus enters the picture, and Sunday morning we come and all of a sudden our focus is back on track because Jesus is here. Well, he's there on Tuesday also. But here we take the time to get our focus back on track. And you know what Jesus says? He says there's going to be adversity. In fact, God sends us into adversity 
in order to get us focused. Because if you look at a time of warfare and you wonder what the people of Ukraine are thinking about, they're not worried about what is a boy or what is a girl. They're not worried about what next stunt will be on America's Got Talent, if you call it that. They're not worried about a debate, which restaurant they're going to go to tonight. Martin Luther King Jr. said, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. So the Lord sends us into adversity in order to get our focus back. We're coming into the season of our Lord's passion, and a lot of people think about giving up something for Lent. We're taking this time apart from our normal rhythms and behaviors to have extra services on Wednesdays. But Luke is drawing our attention in particular to being lost. This theme of those who are lost, who those who do not know where they're going, those who are wandering, and sometimes they don't even know it, and how God finds them. He finds them when they're lost, and he says, this is where I'm going. Are you coming? That's the basic message of the Passion season. Jesus says, this is where I'm going. Are you coming with me to see what happens? In our text, which is from Luke chapter 9, we're going to see four examples of disciples who are misguided in their own way they were lost. They were misguided about what the kingdom was going to mean and where Jesus was going. So where is he going? The first of those disciples we read about is distracted by <coughs> politics. We'll read from the verses 57 through 62 of Luke chapter 9. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the airs have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So this is the section where Jesus is traveling. He's on a journey, and he's turning from his work in Galilee to make his way to Jerusalem now. He's already set the stage telling his disciples he's going to go there to die and to rise again, but it's been hidden from their eyes so that they don't understand what he's talking about. Now, Luke actually, before he records these conversations, Jesus with these three people, he has a turning point in his gospel, and it's just before this at verse 51. When Jesus... When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. 
So you see each of these examples of misguided disciples is going to relate back to where Jesus is going. In other words, the disciples are not going where he's going. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. So first the stage is set here with Jesus focusing on Jerusalem, the turning point in Luke's gospel, and the disciples trying to go ahead of him and make preparations, but people are no longer welcoming him. It's the first time the Samaritans are mentioned. So the first of the misguided disciples we're talking about is those who think Jesus' cause is political, because that's what they're thinking with the Samaritans. If you look back at the history of Samaria, it goes back into the Old Testament to First and Second Kings, where Samaria became the capital focal point for the division of the tribes. The tribes, there were 12 of them, were divided by political arguments and striving for power until there were 10 tribes that split off to the north and it left two tribes to the south. And Samaria was the center point of the capital for the king in the north. But Samaria didn't last. The northern kingdom was not faithful to the Lord, and they fell to the Assyrians who came in. And when the Assyrians came in, they dispersed the people, and they planted foreigners from all over into that society and culture until the religious atmosphere completely was transformed. And so that northern place of Samaria was a mixture of different ethnicities, cultures, and religions where they had a little bit of the Bible and then a little bit of paganism put together into a melting pot. The disciples look at this and say, well, this is just like when Elijah had to deal with the same people in Samaria. And what did Elijah do? He actually called down fire from heaven onto the servants of the king, King Ahaziah, the king of Samaria. He called down fire from heaven because he didn't want to get off his hill to go down and meet the king. He just wanted to get the message that their idolatry is going to lead them to destruction. So the disciples are thinking the same thing. These are our enemies. But they're not seeing what Jesus sees. Sometimes we can get caught up in distractions with politics. Politics distracting us into thinking it's either this or that. You're either on my side or the other side. And we're like dogs chasing squirrels with topics about masks and vaccines or taxes and voting rights. And it's making our, its way into many churches where churches are dividing on the same thing, where churches are looking at their church as us and the other churches as them. If we're only checking the news to reaffirm that we're right, our righteousness, or if you're finding 
even a little bit of joy when you see those on some other side of an issue losing or failing. Or if you're dealing with someone you've tried to help and they refuse to listen and you're angry, Jesus has a rebuke. And instead he says, follow me. He doesn't want you to be distracted from his single mindset that he's got bigger things on his agenda than what's going on in Washington, D.C., or even a squabble that you might have in your personal life. He has a focus on the kingdom, not on retribution, not on us versus them, but on bringing us and them together in getting to the cross. And so he tells them, keep on moving, which is when we run into the next disciple. The next disciple we run into is the one distracted by comforts. This disciple thinks that following Jesus is going to be a great thing, but not too difficult. <clears throat> he says, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, okay, that means you're going to be homeless. He says, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus is telling this man that the measure of a man doesn't come in times of comfort and convenience, but the measure of a man is when he stands at times of challenge and controversy, when God sends adversity and how you respond to it. So the son of man isn't here to make life comfortable. Jesus does not have a home, not a permanent dwelling place because his focus is onward. During the season of Lent, we are drawing our thoughts back to something onward, something beyond just the mundane and the ordinary, just the things we think we need today to make life easier. It kind of reminds me of what we're really saying when we think we're going to solve climate problems or save the environment. It's not all bad. It's not all wrong. In fact, the roots are in Genesis and the Garden of Eden and what it means to live in harmony with our maker. But do we realize that when we're calling for abandoning fossil fuels or buying electric cars, first of all, you have to have a lot of money and you would need to be above the highest paid in all the world to survive that kind of an economic change. And do we realize that everyone else is going to have to revert back to a pre-industrial age? We want the world to be a better place. We want it to be a lasting place. We want it to be free of all the problems. But are we willing to pay the cost? Are we willing to give up the luxuries that we count on every day to make our lives easy? And that's where we kind of fool ourselves into a fantasy that's not going to happen without a great cost to it. How much more true is that when it comes to the kingdom? How much more true is it that when Jesus says, if you want to follow me, do you know the cost? If you think you're going to give something up, and that's going to be what it means to follow me, you're not going to eat any ice cream for the next 40 days, I've got something more to tell you. And he starts heading onward. 
because he's got a goal in mind to give up everything, all the comforts, because he knows we never would have the willpower to do it. And so he continues on and he runs into a third disciple. This disciple is distracted by death. That's a very distracting thing. He says, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now this is a tough one. Is Jesus just being insensitive? How could Jesus say something so rude to a man that just lost his father? That's what we think. In fact, we think Jesus is kind. Jesus is loving. Jesus is soft. He says, judge not that you would not be judged. He says, love your enemies. Would we come to a funeral where we know someone is a potential convert from unbelief to faith and say, leave the funeral, let the dead bury the dead, and you come and follow me? That is what Jesus is saying. Jesus did not come to give us warm, fuzzy feelings about life in this world. He did not come to preach eulogies about the great people he knew in his life. He doesn't spend time observing traditions just for the sake of traditions. You might not want to go to a funeral where Jesus is preaching, depending on the circumstances, because he's saying if you're not following him, you're already dead. And there's no two ways about it. He wasn't mince words. He doesn't play pretend. He's going to give it to you straight that the cost of discipleship is a great cost. It asks you the question, where does your true loyalty lie? Now, I think there's more going on here than just that it's a difficult saying or that Jesus is being insensitive. In fact, I think Jesus is alluding to something that was really a problem in his day. If you go back to First and Second Kings, you read about this where the kings were always given a burial. It makes a point to mention it over and over. It says, David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. Rehoboam slept with his fathers and he was buried in the city of David. Now that burial meant a real significance to the point that it was almost a superstition about burial and what happened to the spirit and the soul at the time of death and what you needed to do to properly deliver that person into peace. Jesus is probably talking about more than this man's death. He's directing us ahead to his death. Here is the king who is not given an honored burial. In fact, everything that Jesus is mentioning here is more about him than it is about the disciple. The one who has no home, the one who's given no funeral. And then the third example there, the one who doesn't even get to say sentimental goodbyes to his family. It's about Jesus. It's about proclaiming the kingdom, and Jesus is seeing that proclaiming the kingdom is not about just mourning the dead, but remembering how God gives life. 
which is why our funerals do focus on a victory, the victory of the cross and the grave. Which brings us to the last category, the fourth disciple is distracted by family. Is your family a distraction? Maybe when you're sitting in church, they can be, depending on the ages. Maybe when you're home in conversation, trying to get through the tasks of the day, they're distracting you from the things that you want to focus on. Well, this last category calls out us to follow Jesus, and it's more than I think we can bear. He says, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. All the guy wants to do is go and say goodbye to his family. Jesus has some hard sayings. Could this be more to it? That the man's family is more than just somebody he wants to go say goodbye to, that they're actually a danger to his faith at this point. Can a family be a distraction to our following of Jesus? Maybe the man is saying he will go, but ultimately he's got something else in his heart. Maybe he's just saying it, but he's double-minded. Maybe he's leaving room for a way out that if he goes back and says goodbye, maybe there's something there that's going on and he will need to stay. And Jesus is saying, don't even go back at this point. Follow me. Because nothing is more important than Jesus. And no one puts his hand to the plow, expecting to plow the field and prepare it for harvest, if he's looking backwards. I think we all can agree that at one point or another, we've betrayed the Lord's allegiance. We've not been loyal. We've been distracted. We've failed in all these categories, which is why ultimately this lesson is not about us and discipleship. It's about Jesus. Every text in the Gospels is telling us something about Jesus and what he has come to do. And we always should be looking for that. He is the one who has no home. He is the one who has no funeral. He is the one who does not get to say goodbye to his own family because they have cast him out of the family. They have put him on a cross. There's no peaceful goodbye for Jesus' family when his fellow countrymen crucify him. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's no kingly burial. He's forsaken by all others. Because he must, he must detach himself from everything that would keep him in this world. Because the only way for him to save us is through death. He has to let go and detach from all earthly things. So the only thing that matters is the will of his father. He's got a singular loyalty. It's urgent. The troops are on the border. And it's like the Ukrainian soldier who volunteered to go to the bridge and set the mines because the Russians were coming. But when he got there and prepared the mines, he was too late. They were already there. So he had to blow himself up in order to destroy that bridge and slow them down. Well, Jesus didn't just slow them down. 
He volunteered. He went and willingly laid down his life for our sakes to defeat the enemy. And when people look at this text and they look at what Jesus is saying, they say, this is insanity. Who would want to follow this guy? And a lot of his teachings about the kingdom did seem outrageous to the people who were listening. But they're directing us to the outrageous plan that God has for us to have our hearts completely belong to him. As we said, we glory in the cross because it sanctifies all our ailments. And God brings us into adversity so that we can know the measure of a man is not when we're comfortable, but it's when we're uncomfortable. He brings us into these adversities so that we would know the only one who can lead us through it is Jesus. He is the one who pledges absolute allegiance to the Father. He is the one who calls us. He is the one we follow. And going into our sermons ahead, we're going to keep asking these questions. Where is he going? Who is he meeting along the way? Where does he end up? And these will teach us a lot we need to know about being disciples and following Jesus. Amen.